0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Power Moves, Ignite Your Confidence and Become a Force, written and narrated by best-selling author Sarah Jakes Roberts and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Sheila Gregoire, to discuss her most recent book, The Great Sex Rescue, which I highly recommend all Christians read. We discuss the damage many popular Christian books on sex have caused when it comes to intimacy, sex, and a man's need versus a woman's need. We also discuss the difference between noticing and lusting and the importance of learning what brings pleasure to your partner. Listen to what Sheila shares about how to view sex as a Christian.
0: You're able to completely bear yourself with him, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Like You just feel like you're so connected, and that's only possible when you can truly trust one another. So when you can trust him, when you're able to get totally vulnerable with each other, then you're able to let go. You know, you're able to totally let go. And that's when pleasure starts. And it's interesting that God created our bodies and our relationships where that most amazing feeling is really only possible when we do let go and when we just allow ourselves to experience, when we're not trying to be in control. And so if you think about how God uses sex as an imagery for his relationship with us, what is he trying to tell us? That with God, you know, we can be completely vulnerable and we don't need to be in control. You know, we can let go of control and we, it's okay to just experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good.
1: I believe this is a book and conversation that needs to be spread far and wide to help reshape some unhealthy and widely held beliefs Christians have about sex. Once you finish this episode, please share it to your favorite social media page or text it to a friend. Good morning, Sheila. Thank you so much for joining me for the Grace Enough podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Will you go ahead as we get started, introduce yourself, your family, tell everybody a little bit about what you do as we jump into this morning's conversation.
0: Okay, so I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire and I've been blogging at tolovehonorandvacuum.com since 2008, mostly about sex, which is super weird. And that <laughs> wasn't, I never set out to be like a sex blogger because nobody does that if they're sane. Um, <laughs> I was i was writing in the mommy space and the parenting space and the houseworking space But for various reasons, um, people kept asking me to speak on sex. My husband and I spoke at marriage conferences, and we always did the sex talk because nobody else wanted to. And so I kind of got pushed in that direction. And then in 2012, my first sex book was out, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And I've been talking about it ever since. Um, But over the last few years, our emphasis has shifted a little bit because what we've really been wanting to do is challenge some of the ways that the church has been talking about sex and get us back to what I think the Bible is really talking about. So we, we put out great content for so long, and then we realized it's not enough to just put out great content. Sometimes you have to challenge what's wrong as well.
1: Hmm. Well, and that's the thing we were just talking about before I started recording that I I'm about three-fourths of the way through the Great Sex Rescue. And so we're going to talk about that today. Tell me a little bit about the Bear Marriage Project to get us going. Like, what was that? What kind of launched you into that?
0: Well, okay, so this, to not only am I weird because... I blog about sex. I'm super weird because my family works, a lot of my family works for me, including my daughter, Rebecca, and her husband, Connor. So Connor's our tech guy. Rebecca did a lot of writing for me. Uh, and then when a friend of hers moved to town, Joanna, she started working for me as well. And Joanna's an epidemiologist and a statistician. And then around two years ago, I read Love and Respect by Emerson Egridge, which is, I know this is going to sound weird because I've been blogging and writing and speaking about sex and marriage, but I hadn't actually read a lot of the books mm-hmm. because I have this abnormal fear that I'm going to plagiarize someone. So I just, I just assumed if it's Christian, it's good. And so I recommended all the books. I would hold them up at marriage conference and saying, you got to read this. It's a really good book, but I had never actually read it. And so I sat down and wow. I read it two years ago. I know. And I've apologized profusely. Like (laughs) if you were ever at a marriage conference and I told you to read a book, I am so sorry. I will. I have learned my lesson. Um, but I read it and I saw what he said about sex, and I was really horrified. And so we started looking at other books, and we realized we had a problem. So my my daughter and Joanna both have a unique skill set, and that my daughter specialized in her psychology degree in psychometrics and survey development, and Joanna <laughs> is a statistician. So we decided we would just do the largest survey that's ever been done of Christian women. We surveyed 20,000 women last year before COVID hit, which is good because that would have screwed up our results, but you know, right. 20,000 women, um, largest survey ever been done in the evangelical world asked 130 questions minimum. Some women had more depending on how you answered certain things, uh, took at least 25 minutes. So this was a huge undertaking and what we were it was supposed- all done
1: via phone call or did you send no, out was, surveys?
0: It was an online survey that people could answer anonymously. Um, And what we were specifically looking for was, are there certain evangelical teachings that are correlated with lower marriage and sexual satisfaction? Mm. And we certainly found that there were.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which is what a lot of the book, the findings are. And so tell me, what would you say? is one of the most damaging, wildly held, widely held beliefs about sex and marriage in the evangelical world, in the culture that we both uh, tend to find ourselves running in. And that really is preventing us from engaging in sex the way God intended it.
0: Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them and we can talk about something, but I think the foundational one, the one that you see in so many of our books is that sex is a male need. Mm Mm-hmm like Emerson Egerton, love and respect says, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. And then he talks about how a husband needs physical release through sexual intimacy, just as you need emotional release. I don't know what emotional release is like, that's so weird for like, I picture Sandra Bullock in the proposal when she's in the forest with Betty White and she's doing that dance. Like, I don't, I don't know what emotional release is, but he says that, you know, husbands need physical release and women need emotional release. And, and he's not the only one who did this. Um, Every man's battle talks about sex as being about giving your husband release. Uh, so does power of a praying wife. You know, his he needs release or he, his eyes get cloudy. Like all kinds of these books talk about sex in terms of, of men's release, something that men need. And that is just not the way the Bible talks about it. And that's such an unhealthy, unhelpful way of looking at sex, Because when we see it as something that men need and women don't, then we can easily think that all that's important during sex is that he gets release Mm -hmm. and our experience doesn't even matter.
1: Mm. And that's not how the Bible sees it. So here's my, my pushback, because I know exactly what you're talking about. And honestly, I sometimes think, have I bought into that? Or have I seen that somewhat true in my own marriage? Um, or have my husband and I both bought into it and we see that it's true Mm -hmm. because I was talking to my husband about this as I was reading through the first couple of chapters. And I said, you know, I do, I mean, he does want it more than I want it for Mm -hmm. sure. And what I would see as emotional release is I would be completely fine having a, Wonderful, uh, engaging conversation, and then us being done. But Mm -hmm. what is the danger in thinking that that applies to the whole Mm -hmm. of Christian marriage instead? Because I know it's not an either or. Exactly. And God
0: created sex to be and intimate knowing. And I think that's what's missing is, you know, in Genesis four, and we kind of laugh about this verse, because it sounds odd. You know, it says, "Um, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived unto them a son. And and we giggle and we think, oh, God's embarrassed of using the real word or whatever. But when you look at that Hebrew word for to know, it's the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, oh, God.
1: Oh, wow. You know my
0: inmost heart. It, it means this deep, intimate longing to be connected. And I think that's why God also uses such sexual imagery to talk about his relationship with us. You know, it's to tell us that sex is not just physical. Mm-hmm. It's a deep, intimate knowing. It's when you become totally vulnerable with one another mm. in every way. And that is God's design for sex. We know that from Genesis four, we know from the song of Solomon that sex is also something which is really pleasurable for both people. Mm -hmm. It was never meant just for a man's release. It was meant for a woman's pleasure as well. And we see that again in first Corinthians seven, where it's talked about as something which is completely and utterly mutual. And so, you know, we have this picture in the Bible of sex as being something which is mutual and intimate and pleasurable for both. That is what it's supposed to be.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And yet the way that we treat sex isn't like that. Like if I were to ask you, okay, if I were, and I'm not going to do this, don't worry. Please, you can ask me. But if I were to say, did you have sex last night?
1: (laughs) You can ask me that. And no, I didn't, but I know exactly. And and you're, but what you're probably going to say is what I mean is, intercourse.
0: Exactly. Right. Like when, when you hear the question, did you have sex or did they have sex or, Oh, they had sex. What we think we mean is, you know, did he put his thing into her and move around to the climax, like intercourse is our definition of sex, but that's not how we should be seeing it. And the problem is when we see sex as only intercourse, we really erase her experience Mm -hmm. because she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be lying there thinking about ceiling tiles or where she could be lying there in pain, or she could be lying there in emotional turmoil and it would still count as having sex. Mm. And yet that's not what the Bible sees as sexual intimacy at all. Wow. Because in the biblical idea of sex, she matters just as much. And that's what's missing from our evangelical conversation. I'm not saying that she has to have the same libido. I mean, we don't, like you said, you know, that's right. He might have a higher libido, but her experience still matters just as much as his does during sexual intimacy.
1: Hey, Grace Enough podcast listeners. I can't wait to tell you about an amazing new resource I've found, Kaleidoscope. Their vision is so cool. They help kids and parents bridge the gap between storybook Bibles and adult translations. Adult translations are typically written at a high school level or higher, but Kaleidoscope retells every book of the Bible in beautifully designed and illustrated single volumes with the elementary aged kids in mind. Our family has some of their books and we love them. This month, they have two amazing new releases. Over the River, The Story of Joshua, And their first volume in the Minor Prophets, Sound the Alarm, written by the hysterical and talented Caroline Saunders. Go ahead and visit ReadKaleidoscope.com where you can take 10% off today with the code GRACE. You can also find them on Instagram at Read.Kaleidoscope to learn more. Kaleidoscope, the new kid in kids' Bibles. Well, and that's something you all talk about is this interchangeable, like taking intimacy and sex and using those two interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And there's great danger in that. And so. You know, what would you say to that, that we have to be very, very careful not to use those two because they're not the same, but dig into that a little bit because you wrote extensively on it.
0: Yeah. So often I I always laugh because when I used to do radio interviews um, for the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, you know, that came out 2012 before podcasts. So I was doing mostly Christian radio interviews and a lot of them wouldn't want me to say the word sex. So they'd want me to say intimacy. Okay. So we had talk about intimacy. Now, the problem is that you can have intercourse and that's not intimate at all. Absolutely. But we assume that the act of sex is intimate in and of itself. And the fact is, if you're having sex in a way where she feels as if she doesn't matter, it's not just that it's not intimate, it's actively against intimacy. Because when she feels like she doesn't matter, then it's actually a rejection of her as a person.
1: So true. It's so true. Why do we do this? <laughs> I mean like seriously, why do we do this? And you, you know, I can kind of jump ahead a little bit and say that another conversation that I was trying to communicate with my husband that you guys talk about so much that I agree with is the way that we're teaching young boys and young girls to, Mm -hmm. it it basically places blame back on young girls. Mm -hmm. You be modest because if you're not, you're causing him Mm -hmm. to be tempted and to lust. And so what's the mixed message there i always knew when i was younger that there was just something not right about that Mm -hmm. um which i think a lot of people do but they don't know how to voice it because that's not what's popular in culture
0: yeah i there's there's two messages that go along with that the one that the really big one that's very widespread is this idea that all men struggle with lust it's every man's battle that's widely believed it's widely taught and we found that when women are taught this even if they don't believe it, just being taught this lowers your trust in your husband later, it lowers your sexual satisfaction. And if you believe it, it does so even more so, but like even being taught it, if you don't believe it is dangerous. And I actually think that's one of those messages that hurts men just as much. Like this hurts both of us, because Mm -hmm. if you look at it from a teenage boy's point of view, you know, to be taught that you are always going to be tempted to lust um, I think what we're not teaching boys is the difference between sexual attraction and lust. You know, Jesus said, whoever looks with lust at a woman has committed adultery. He doesn't say whoever sees a woman and gets sexually Amen. aroused. He doesn't say, he doesn't even say whoever looks at a woman. It's a deliberate action combined with a deliberate mindset that is what lust is. So if a teenage boy sees a really attractive woman and feels attraction towards her, That is not lust. That's normal sexual development and that's normal sexual feelings. And yet I think we have shamed so many guys into thinking that they are sinning just by existing. And so, Mm. you know, we've taught them, you need to bounce your eyes so that you never see a woman. Because if you're tempted because you're so visual, you'll be tempted to lust. And once you're tempted, it's hard to resist. And so it's better not to even see her. Well, this teaches guys to see women as only sexual objects. Because as soon as you have to bounce your eyes, you're already seeing her as a danger to you. Mm -hmm. You're still objectifying her, whether you lust after her or whether you bounce your eyes, you're still objectifying her. You're still seeing her as only sexual. And Jesus didn't refuse to look at women. What Jesus did was choose to truly see women.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh
0: man. As whole people. And that's what we should be teaching our kids is, Hey, you know what? your teenagers, you're going to feel sexual attraction to each other. That's normal. That's okay. You know, it's important, however, that you always treat the other person with dignity and respect. And remember that the way that we get over lust and the way that we defeat lust is by, by seeing each other as whole people made in the image of God and concentrating on that. And if we talk to our teenagers about that, that's such a healthier message. Then he is an animal who's going to lust. And also, you know that whole that whole conversation ignores the fact that that many girls lust and struggle with lust and are visually stimulated as well, (laughs) and it makes them feel like freaks. And so, you know, there's that problem too. Um, But yes, this this placing of blame for men's thought life and men's sins on women is so prevalent. You know, women need to be modest. Women can't be temptations. You can't be a stumbling block to him. And it makes women feel a great deal of shame for our bodies. And that's been shown to also decrease, you know, marital and sexual satisfaction later, Mm -hmm. because we feel like there's something inherent about me, which is just dangerous and icky.
1: Yeah. And I remember um, I had a good friend and she got married before I did and, you know, grew up in Christian culture. Whereas I grew up just knowing who Jesus was, but really doing whatever I wanted. So I didn't have that same kind of baggage in that area Mm -hmm. that she had. And I just remember her description of her honeymoon and how, I mean, like they just didn't know what they were doing and how uncomfortable she felt. And I think some of those feelings are normal, but I can't help but think that some of those are you've covered yourself. And and again, I I don't want to say that I don't think we should be modest. I think we should be modest mainly for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just remember her and the struggle that she had for years, getting past some of that shame. And she couldn't even put her finger on that's what really was going on. Um, And so do you feel like you found some of that in your survey where women's responses were so much like, I didn't even want to be naked.
0: Yeah, we, we talked to a lot of women like that in our focus groups because um, we did this huge survey and then we interviewed and did some focus groups with women afterwards to try to flesh out some of the results. And we talked to a lot of women who just could never be naked in front of their husbands for years because they felt like there was something wrong with their bodies. And then there was this other message that went along with it that made honeymoons difficult, which was the idea that we often teach teenagers that boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. Mm. You know, boys will push you. And so girls, you need to be the gatekeepers. He's going to be the one to push on the accelerator. You need to be the one to push on the brakes and make sure it doesn't get too far. You know, Shanti Feldon in her book for young women only, which was read by a ton of teenage girls in the 2000s and was heavily promoted by Brio magazine, um, focus on the families magazine said that 82% of boys feel little ability or little responsibility to stop the sexual progression. So if you want to stop, it's better to not even start. And there's several problems with that. Um, First of all, the 82%, her survey question wasn't valid. And that's not really what she found, but this is what she promoted. But to say that a boy has has little ability to stop, like ability to stop, Mm. basically makes it sound like if you are a victim of date rape, It was your fault because you shouldn't even have started because he has no ability to stop. And, you know, so we talked to a lot of women who were victims of date rape but hadn't realized it at the time because they had read Christian resources that told them stuff like this. And so they felt it was their fault, even though they had said no, because after all, he can't stop. He's past the point of no return.
1: Wow doesn't that just make us feel like like men are totally stupid and unable to do anything yeah. like and well, that's not, it's not like, even true No it
0: just is such a low view of men it is. Yes. Men have the Boys have the Holy Spirit. You know, boys are honorable. Our Christian guys should not be treated like this. And yet, um, when we tell girls this, they have no ability to recognize when a guy is dangerous versus when a guy isn't, because it's assumed that all guys are dangerous. So you're with a dangerous guy and you assume, oh, this is just the way all guys are. But the other thing that happens, okay, date rape is a terrible thing absolutely atrocious, but even if it's not a dangerous situation. So even if you're with a completely honorable guy, you know, you picture a makeout situation before marriage and what's going on in his head is this is really fun. This is amazing. But what's going on in her head is, do I need to stop it yet? How heavy is his breathing getting? You know, is he getting too excited? Should I put the brakes on? And so it's like she's judging what's going on or she's watching what's going on rather than experiencing what's going on. And I'm not trying to argue that we all need to be making out hot and heavy before marriage. That's not what I mean. I just mean that what we've done with some of our messages is we've primed girls to not know how to be present in their bodies because they always have to be trying to stop. And then you get married and they have no idea how to just experience.
1: Yeah. Well, we just start believing that we're just going to like, okay, now that we've said vows um, we're just going to be able to jump in the sack and everything's going to be awesome. Right. And the problem is we get doesn't work.
0: No, and we get married, especially if you're both virgins or whatever, and you think the goal is now intercourse, you know, because we're supposed to have sex. And what we're trying to show in the Great Sex Rescue is no, the goal should be arousal figure out how to get her aroused and even figure out how to get her to orgasm. Cause if you figure out those two pieces, intercourse is going to be easy peasy. (laughs) 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 But if you do intercourse first, when she's not aroused at all, she can start to think, wow, I guess I just don't like sex Mm. or wow, I guess I'm just broken. And especially remember that we've been taught that sex is intercourse and that sex is a man's need. And so then he's just going to assume, oh, I guess my wife is just not into this that's okay. That's what I've been taught is normal.
1: And then couples never figure out that arousal piece and they never figure out the pleasure piece for her. It is so true too, with the whole, you know, it just, with a woman, it takes more time. And I love something that you, you know, write when you're talking about, um, it's not that women cannot be aroused or that men are more easily aroused. It's really much more about sexual positioning in the sense of, I mean, a man's arousal is very easy because in intercourse, it just happens. Yeah. Whereas for a woman, that is not the case. There has to be some discovery going on. And so what, what do you think though, that needs to be the message that we are talking about to young kids and young adults, even, you know, I know people who, including myself, who came to know Jesus as a young adult. And so I still had to do a mindset shift Mm -hmm. from what sex is intended for compared to what I experienced previously. And so that can just be a whole nother mixed bag of, of um, emotions. And so what do you think we should be telling them? I think we really need to get
0: back again to that definition where sex is not about intercourse. Sex is Mm. any sexual activity that you do together for the purposes of arousal and pleasure and intimacy. Mm. And that that is what's important in a marriage. You know, we, we make it sound like what is vitally important in a marriage is that the couple has intercourse but that ignores the number 47. And I want everyone to remember this. If you remember nothing else from this podcast, I want you to remember the number 47 because <laughs> 47 points is our orgasm gap. And what I mean by that is that roughly 95 to 96% of men almost always are always orgasm during a sexual encounter, but only about 48% of women do. So that's a 47 point orgasm gap. And a lot of that gap is because of the women who can orgasm, only 30% do it through intercourse alone. Mm -hmm. The vast majority need a lot of foreplay or they find other routes to orgasm more consistent and reliable. And so when we're thinking about sex, what we should be thinking about is a mutually pleasurable, intimate experience where the end goal is that both of you enjoy each other Mm -hmm. and enjoy yourselves. (laughs) And it doesn't really matter how you get there. But that needs to be the goal as opposed to just intercourse. Because when we stress just intercourse, she could be having sex for 10 years and never getting anything out of it. And in fact, many of our books tell her that her orgasm really isn't that important. And that it's not something worth aiming for. Like the main thing, like so many of our books tell, tell women, um, for women only, for instance, says, you know, what your husband really needs, isn't sexual release so much as to know that you're enthusiastic and that you want this. And so make sure that you communicate how much you want it, even if you're physically unable to respond.
1: And I just, my personality is like, I cannot do that. But I know that is not true for most Christian women. And I know it because I have conversations just like you with a yeah. lot of Christian women because I'm not at all, um, it doesn't bother me to talk about sex. Like some people, yeah. it's just so no yeah. way. And I'm like, oh, come on, whatever. This, <laughs> you know, but that drives me crazy when you say that because I just think about this can also be something that. Truly leads to so many divorces because when this is a failure, number one, moms already feel the duty to do their to-do list is so long. Yeah, all they need is to now feel the duty to have sex. Yeah, and it's duty so dangerous.
0: Sex. Duty sex is really toxic. That was another belief that we looked at. And that was probably the most toxic belief. This idea that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And that's throughout all of our resources. Like even talking about the mom issue, um, you know, Kevin Lehman in his book, Sheep Music says that if a woman is postpartum or if she's bleeding heavily on a period, or if she simply doesn't feel her best, she can make use of hand jobs when he's ready to climb the walls. And so he's telling a woman who's postpartum or who's having a really bad period, or has got a migraine, you should give him a hand job. And elsewhere it says um, that if your husband's addicted, you know, struggling with pornography and you're on your period, you can make use of oral sex or a hand job um, to help him during his difficult time. And so it's talking about her period, like it's a difficult time for the husband. (laughs) Listen. And I mean, now I have, if you, if you are one of the 15% of women who love period sex, you go for it. This is not a talk against period. There was actually 15%. (laughs) Yes, there are. Now there's, then there's others of us who is just so heavy and you're just so gross. Like, just don't touch me anywhere there. Like, and, and, and if you're feeling gross or if you're postpartum, you know, (laughs) your, your thoughts should be healing. I mean, I had such bad tears and I was, you weren't sleeping and you got milk everywhere. You know, this is a time for a man to love his wife as his own body. Mm -hmm. And yet instead our resources are telling women, you need to give him an orgasm even during these, these times, because they're difficult for him, not for you, which is really problematic. Um, And then so many books tell women that it's a sin to refuse sex unless you're praying or fasting but they don't say, you know, well, what if, what if there's real distance between you? What if he never makes any attempt to make sex feel good for you? What if he never even tries to make it about you? Um, what if he treats you in a dehumanizing way? Like you matter. Mm -hmm. And this idea that women don't matter, that our needs are unimportant is highly toxic. In fact, it's so toxic that the obligation sex message leads to the same increase in the chance that you're going to experience sexual pain, statistically almost the same as if you had been sexually abused.
1: Oh gosh.
0: I think there's a 1% difference. So it's like when you think about it, when you're sexually abused, that's like someone saying, you don't matter. I have the right to use you. Mm -hmm. And it's an extreme rejection of you as a person. And the our bodies interpret the obligation sex message in the same way. You don't matter. He has the right to use you. And what a lot of people don't know is that Christian women. This has been known for like fifty years that evangelical Christian women have twice the rate of sexual pain as the general population. Really. And it's messages like this that are so highly correlated with that. Like everybody knows. Everybody knows what erectile dysfunction means, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You watch any? I yeah, like we all know, right. But how many women actually know the word vaginismus, I know. Very few of us do. And yet if you look at women in their twenties and thirties vaginismus is far more common than erectile dysfunction. You know, Mm -hmm. we found 22% of women experience sexual pain. That's when the, the muscles in the vaginal wall contract involuntarily. So you're not doing it deliberately, but you literally can't relax Mm -hmm. those muscles. So it makes penetration really painful. Um, and 7% have it to the point that, that, um, intercourse is actually impossible. You know, and yet we never talk about this. And all of our books say you're not allowed to refuse your husband. And so women who are in pain feel like they have to push through the pain, like his pleasure is more important than my pain.
1: And that's the thing, too, where communication comes in because I was a physical therapist before I became a stay at home mom. And so I know um, women physical therapists who that's all they do is women's health. And so that's the practice that they have. And when I've told people, physical therapists, women's health, what does that mean? And I'm like, what that means is we treat the vaginal area Mm -hmm. for dysfunction. There's like, what do you even, you know, I mean, just totally clueless. And I'm like, yeah, there are actually PTs in the world that that's all they do all day long is work with women who it's after childbirth, or it's just something they weren't aware of until they got married. And there's a variety of things that prevent them from enjoying intercourse. And so this whole idea that, um, women feel like they can't communicate with their husband's, um, pain because at all costs, they cannot deprive him. Yeah. Um, and then also the, what men have received is this, that's right. I can get it at all costs. And, And I know that your survey wasn't of men. But I have to say at the end of the day, even when thinking about my own husband, I know that he wants me to feel pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, But for years, he just didn't know because we didn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you feel like also, I mean, we're women saying that a lot, like we just weren't really digging deep into the communication. We were just going off of what we'd heard or what we read.
0: Oh, definitely. Um, There was one woman in our focus groups named Charlotte. And I love her story because she actually enjoyed sex because of the emotional closeness, but she never felt pleasure from it for like 25 years of marriage. Wow. And she would talk to her husband about it. And she would say like, I really think we're doing something wrong. We're missing out on something. And he, re- he kind of shut down because he felt like like she was criticizing him when that wasn't what she was trying to do. She was yeah. just trying to say, look, we need to try something different because I'm not feeling good. But he felt like, well, we're doing it. We're having intercourse. And so what's wrong that you're not enjoying it? And so she tried for 25 years and then finally she just put her foot down and said, no, we're going to figure this out. I don't want to keep having sex like this, where it's all for you. And so he listened <laughs> and she did a ton of reading and she, they finally figured out the orgasm piece for her, but it took that 25 years. And she went along for that time because she just felt like that's what she was supposed to do. And he had been taught his whole life that sex is vitally important in marriage and all sex is, is intercourse. And so if she's enjoying herself that's not his problem because he's providing Mm -hmm. her with intercourse so the problem must be that that her body is broken Mm. and then once they just really did talk about it once she put her foot down and said no we need to get this right i don't want to i've already lost 25 years of marriage i'm not going to lose the next 25 years we're going to figure this out and you know they're doing great now but it just took that communication because he's not a bad guy like right. he wasn't a bad guy. He just really didn't get it.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. See, and I feel like that's more of the common, I think that's more common than we care to realize mm-hmm. that men really do want their wives to be satisfied, but they don't know where to begin either. I mean, I'm sure there's other extremes, but um, yeah, I mean, that's just heartbreaking in a lot of ways, right? That we we're like totally messing people up.
0: Yeah. And that's what we found over and over again, is that like our bestsellers are totally messing people up and we need to do better than this. But I I find Charlotte's story hopeful too. So if any of you are listening and you're in that situation, you may think, well, it's been 19 years. And sex hasn't felt that good. So I guess I'm just stuck with this. No, you're not. Like you can start over. (laughs) I just want people to know that we've got a lot of fun exercises in the Great Sex Rescue to help you figure out that arousal piece and help you figure out the orgasm piece. And I've got all kinds of other books that do that to even greater extent. Um, But sometimes it honestly is just getting rid of these mindsets that we have because I think a lot of women feel like intercourse is the thing. And so if I need something else, I'm being selfish. Or if it's taking too long and I know he's not enjoying it and he's getting tired and he's thinking we should just get on with the main thing, then I guess I'm just taking too long. It's my problem. And we don't understand. No, God created your body like this. God created women's bodies so that we would need to get some one-on-one attention from him where it doesn't necessarily pleasure him. <laughs> you know, like God created us this way and it's, you're allowed and it's good for you to want to get that pleasure from your husband. You're not being selfish.
1: Well, as we start to close up here, um, you say that harmful beliefs you measured, and we've talked about this a little bit, are common beliefs in the evangelical world, Um, but you wouldn't necessarily call them Christian beliefs. And so while we've shared, or you've shared some of what you believe are Christian beliefs about sex, is there anything that you would add to that? What is true Christian belief about sex. I
0: think if I can just give us a picture maybe of what I think God wanted for us in that it is real passion. You know, and we tried, we tried to give that in the last chapter, just this vision of what real passion looks like, where you're able to be completely vulnerable with one another. You're able to completely bear yourself with him, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Like you just feel like you're so connected and that's only possible when you can truly trust one another. So when you can trust him, when you're able to get totally vulnerable with each other, then you're able to let go you know, you're able to totally let go. And that's when pleasure starts. And it's interesting that God created our bodies and our relationships, where that most amazing feeling is really only possible when we do let go. And when we just allow ourselves to experience when we're not trying to be in control. Mm. And so if you think about how God uses sex, as an imagery for his relationship with us, what is he trying to tell us? that with God, you know, we can be completely vulnerable and we don't need to be in control. <laughs> mm. You know, we can let go of control and we, it's okay to just experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And if we can get that picture of sex, where it is just passion that carries us along, it's true trust, it's true vulnerability, it flows from a wonderful, intimate relationship with your husband that's so much healthier. Than this duty transactional message that we're so often given. yeah. And so I just hope that people can put off those negative messages and really get a vision for what God wants for us. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. Just make it the most fun research project you'll ever do together. <laughs> that's right.
1: That's right. And talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing. The great sex rescue can be found anywhere. And I have appreciated just some of the questions that you have at the end of each section, different exercises that you have. And so tell everybody like, what is one of your greatest hopes for the book? I hope that
0: couples will realize that sex is for her just as much as it's for him, but also that this will be the wake up call the church needs to Mm. stop saying so many of these harmful things and get back to a real Jesus-centered view of marriage and sex. Mm. And that it's okay, even if a book says it's Christian, it's okay to reject that book's message if it doesn't line up with what real intimacy looks like.
1: Mm, I love that. Well, Sheila, where can people connect with you if they have further questions or just want to learn more about the book and what you do? You shared your blog earlier, but tell everybody again and then social media where you hang out. Yes, to love, honor and vacuum.com. You can find all of
0: my books, um, my courses, including a brand new orgasm course, which is really fun. And then of course, my bare marriage podcast, which is weekly too, where we talk mostly about sex and all kinds of stuff. Um, so yeah, just find me there. All my social media is linked there too.
1: So to love, honor and vacuum.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Well, thank you. I wish I could sit with each of you to discuss your thoughts, opinions, and questions about everything Sheila and I discussed today. That may not be possible, but we can connect via email or through Instagram direct messenger. Send your thoughts to graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Grace Enough Podcast underscore amber. And don't forget to tag me on social media when you share the episode.
0: Thank you for listening to
1: the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.